Dotnet Rocks, episode 1031, with guest Pete Brown. Recorded Tuesday, August 26th, 2014. Oh my god. What? You're not going to believe what I found for Better No Framework today. I'm looking forward to it then. But Actually, I'm the, looking forward to it no matter what. It's always fun. I'm looking forward to this show in a big, bad way. Pete Brown's here. He's coming up in just a few minutes. Oh my god, big news. Amazing. All right, well, do uh, it. should I just go right to it? Do it! All right, I'm doing it. Roll that crazy, stupid music. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. What do you got? Now, how do you how do you pronounce the word S O L D R, Richard? Solder. Solder. Yep. And, and in America, we say solder. Or yeah, at least on the know, that sounds like it's two D's in it. Yeah, it does. It sounds like S O D D E R. But you know, on the East Coast of America, anyway, this is how we say it. I'm not sure about the West Coast, but I've only heard Canadians say solder, which you would probably say is the correct way to pronounce it because that's the way it's spelled. Yeah. Well, funny. Yeah. Did you also call it chowda? Do you remember the soldering kit that you had, that your dad had when you were like 10? You remember like soldering guns? They used to be huge. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. They used to have like a jet engine in them or something. And you had to, <laughs> it was just a big coil. Yeah. Great big coil. You get arm fatigue trying to solder these little things and they'd have these great big, you know, uh, melters on the front. I don't know what you call that. Yeah. Just a coil. But anyway, the times have changed, and I went looking for the ultimate soldering iron, soldering kit, and I found one. It's, it uses butane, and it's cordless. Go to tinyurl.com slash butane solder, S-O-L-D-E-R. Nice. Butane solder. It's the Weller P2KC Professional Self-Igniting Cordless Butane Soldering Iron Kit. I like the self-igniting part. That's just, you know. Oh, Yeah. And, I need and to own more things that are called self-igniting. I love self-igniting. But what's cool is, you know, with any standard electric solder gun, you have to wait for it to warm up before you can use it. And this is butane. This is like, fire, you're yeah. hot. It's still got to warm up. It's just going to warm up fast. Fast. Right. Yeah. And if you read the comments, you'll see why there are 57 reviews and it's four, uh, four and a half stars average. <laughs> gets hot melts things what yeah. more do you need to know <laughs> yeah and uh also you can uh use less the rosin and all of the other benefits that come along with having a very efficient solder solder gun there you go there you go nice so i figured you know it's the internet of things we're dealing with devices some of them you may have to put the component on or you might not have to so you know for the for the geeky uh, electronics guys that are in the room. Uh, this is for you. Thank you, dude. Yeah. And uh, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1019, which we did just recently with Dan Rosenstein when we were talking about IoT. Yeah. Right? And that was the first conversation about the Galileo device and so forth, which I'm sure we're going to talk about some more. Yeah. Uh, and we got lots of great comments. So clearly, you know, we're we're putting in a few number of IoT shows right now because there's an opportunity here but john talon i think nails my thinking as well he says great show guys and it begs the question can your typical skilled software engineer pick up a few chipsets with some 
uh, micro framework on board and start writing apps that add value? Mm-hmm. Or is this a newer way to think about writing software for connected systems and devices? I wonder if there will be big players that will capture and control the market early and that already have devices out in production. Will we see an app store for IoT or where 95% of the IoT devices do nothing but monitor the heat of your coffee or tell you how many times you say the F word daily, weekly, etc.? right? <laughs> He's basically describing the iFart equivalent of IoT, which That's I love. Right. Just think, is that where we're going to go? We might just go there. For IoT to take hold on smaller companies that do innovate normally, it would be great to have a show about how one would go about designing and marketing a device that solves a real-world problem. It may be a multi-part podcast, but the gap is, how do I innovate using IoT and build my business? Good question. Excellent question, John. It's certainly been on my mind. You know, I feel like we're laying the groundwork right now with some stories, but I am already in pursuit of these great case studies. So happy to send you a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And before we go any further, let me tell you, Pluralsight is home to the largest technology and creative training library on the planet. They have thousands of developer IT and creative courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release dozens of new courses every month and still offer a 10-day free trial, giving you 200 minutes of access. Pluralsight offers a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything on the Microsoft stack. Try Plural Site today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And now I would like to introduce to you Mr. Pete Brown. He is a PM at Microsoft focusing on the Internet of Things, devices that go ping or blink or extrude plastic, XAML, and .NET, and his favorite, apps and technology for musicians. Welcome, Pete. Hey, guys. We had your uh, your friend and co uh, cohort Jason Olson on our 1000th show. Did you happen to listen to that? Yeah, Jason. Jason's a really great guy. Yeah, that oh, was yeah. a great show too. And and you guys, we didn't we didn't really get to talk all that much about his mini project. Of course, it was a setup, you know. But uh, but you and he um talked about this at Build, and I just want to give it give it the proper space that it deserves. Tell tell me about the MIDI and Windows 8 thing that you guys did. Sure. So uh, at Build, and sorry, I need to get my head out of IoT iFart land here. I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's just like it, all the, the ideas are really spinning right now. Oh, I think I ought to be if anybody's going to make it. Distributed yeah. fart systems. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, but but uh, and maybe we can make it MIDI control just to tie oh, things. Oh, why not? Ah, right. Did you hit the lowest note on the piano? It just goes, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And your mother-in-law can smell it. Clear across the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not sure of the value prop on that one, but it would still be pretty funny. Um, <laughs> this, yeah, so Jason and I at Build uh, did a session on uh, just music technology in Windows, and there were a couple of parts to that. Uh, and so I did the MIDI part because I've been pretty excited about that. Uh, there are a, a couple of interesting things that are related to that the first the it's the first time that windows has released something through nuget which if wow. you think about how we've run in windows for a really long time or osg as, as we call it now uh releasing something on nuget's a really big deal i mean the, yes, you know releasing is. an api I mean, for the rest of the developers just like yeah okay nuget wonderful uh, thank you for joining us uh you know there uh today but uh, uh releasing an api over there was something new to them and and really required a change of thinking about how they develop some of these apis so that was 
an interesting uh, uh, project and, and kind of a really fun approach to that. So the, this gave uh, uh, MIDI access, musical instrument digital interface, uh, access to Windows 8 apps, which right. did not ship in the box, right? Right. So we've had a couple of different MIDI interfaces for desktop apps forever and ever. There's Win32 stuff. There's some stuff that's in uh, DirectX. Uh, and really, those are the two main things. Uh, but what we didn't have is the ability to have MIDI support in Windows Store apps. And that was something that everybody kept asking us for. They want to create, you know, really cool tablet-based apps or modern apps that let you perform with MIDI devices. And so as part of the early work that we were doing with the music team, we released the MIDI API at Build as a preview. Uh, it's, you know, something that we use to get a lot of feedback from customers. And we've had a ton of feedback on that. Uh, but the idea of that was to create a new MIDI API that's friendly and works across all platforms that WinRT is going to work on and gives us a platform that we can really innovate. So you guys uh, actually implemented a brand new MIDI stack with serial communications up, right? You didn't rely on the stuff that already existed. Is that true? Well, it it, it relies heavily uh, on the class drivers and all of that support down at the hardware level. Uh, but at the API layer, it's all brand new stuff. Good. Great. And, and that gives us the ability to innovate further. So, you know, we've had a lot of people say, what about RTP MIDI or what about, um, you know, MIDI over Wi-Fi? What about MIDI over Bluetooth and all these other kind of emerging uh, technologies that aren't quite there yet uh, for real musicians because they're concerned about latency and whatnot, mm -hmm. but are clearly something that's going to happen in the future. Yeah. Okay, cool. And the old APIs didn't, didn't really give us the ability to, to do that. That's very awesome. Well, I wish you continued success on that, and I'll, I will probably be using that sometime in the future, I'm sure. Yeah, thank you. Okay, let's talk about the, the, the new stuff that's coming out of Microsoft. We talked about with Dan the uh, Galileo boards, and, you know, I was sort of like, oh, man, you know, I can't run .NET on that. What's the, oh, you know, okay, I got to use C++ and stuff. All right, well, we couldn't really, he couldn't really say anything, but um, you guys made a major announcement yesterday uh, as we're recording this on the 26th. So on the right. 25th, you guys made a major announcement. Tell us what it is. And let me go back to the Galileo for just a second first. The, um, you said you can't run .NET on it, but as it turns out, if you keep the app really simple, in other words, it's only using the stuff that's in the, the core CLR, not any of the other libraries or anything, you can actually write a console app that works. Okay. At, so I tried that out, but honestly, that is accidentally functional as opposed to <laughs> Got it. purposely uh, purposefully functional. It's not sanctioned. Well, yeah, because right. after that, I ran across the Galileo C-sharp project on CodePlex that lets you run a Linux image, but still support the .NET framework through Mono. Through Mono, yeah. Yeah. And I've had people ask me, hey, can you get Mono working on the Windows image on Galileo? And it's something that I'm going to take a look at because that might make perfect sense. Mono is a great uh, great way to get .NET on different stuff. Okay, we're, we're waiting with bated breath. Yes. So, all right, so the announcement yesterday. Yeah. Um, so th there are a couple of different groups inside Microsoft that deal with hardware. Uh, you spoke with Dan, who's on the client side of the IoT group. Mm -hmm. There's also a group called Sigma, which is under Don Box. Right. And they create all sorts of stuff to enable driver development and everything. And they started getting more into the hardware space. And 
what we have found, you know, in our studies over the past few years is that in order for a third party to create drivers and new hardware for Windows, they had to get an MSDN license, which was expensive. They had to go to one of those sites to get a board where it's always request a quote, which I don't know about you guys, but if I see request a yep. quote, I just assume Pass. I'm going to get screwed and then I don't bother, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's really about like how much money are you willing to give us at that point? Right. <laughs> uh, and, and so, um, we decided that we needed to reduce a lot of those barriers. And so the first thing that we did was we released uh, the Sharks Cove development board, and we announced that at Build, and we just did the official unveiling of it yesterday. Uh, but at the same time, you know, so that's like a $300 board. It's not a Raspberry Pi or anything. It's just for, or really for hardware development for pro-level guys, you know, people who are going to build another tablet, um, who are looking to build devices that are going to connect to your PC, et cetera, et cetera. And that runs a 32-bit version of Windows, right? Yeah, and it's got an Atom processor on it. Uh, Really great board, lots of I.O., but you do need to write drivers to get access to everything. Okay. But what we did with that is we, at the same time, we said, all right, so $300, you can get that at Mouser, so you don't have to go to a -a request-a-quote type site. Mouser.com? Yep, Mouser.com, which is anybody who's done anything with electronics or or sol- soldering, as I guess <laughs> Rich Rich was saying. <laughs> okay. I don't think I could. I I can't do it, Rich. It's solder, solder, chowder, 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 and solder. solder. I don't even know her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, so we did that. So we so we made it available there. And then at the same time, we said, you know what? You can use the Express Edition of Visual Studio to code for your driver development. Mm-hmm. And so that cut out almost all the barriers and there's no NDA required, no additional stuff there. And so that cut out all the barriers for hardware development. So that was the first board. And then the next board that we just announced for the first time yesterday is the Minoboard Max. Yeah, now, I like the uh, the the fish uh, motif that you have going here. Shark's Cove and Minoboard Max tells you that yeah. it's a little smaller. Yeah, it's it's a little smaller. And have you heard what they call their versions of shields on no, the Minoboard Max? come on, Mac? tell me. Uh, they're Got called lures. Lures. Oh, no. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, all the old men who really love puns and stuff are just like, yes, this is the best thing in the world. The rest of <laughs> hey, us. Hey, who are you like, calling old? Yeah, all, all of us on this call. <laughs> so. And uh, so we released that and it's it kind of does the same type of thing as the Sharks Go, but it's a much smaller board. Mm. Uh, it has a 64-bit Atom processor on it, mm-hmm. which is a pretty big deal. And, you know, the I.O. capabilities are a little different. Uh, you can get it with, uh, you know, two gigs of RAM or a dual core processor versus, you know, a gig of RAM and a single core processor. And it, it's just it's a really great hackable board. Yeah. My first question is, it's very small. And it, this, unlike the Sharks Cove, does run 64 bit windows in any skew of windows. Right. This will run Windows 8. Isn't that true? So what we recommend for these is uh, Windows Embedded Industry 8.1. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it's an Atom processor board. In theory, it'll run just about anything that you can normally run on an Atom. And um, since it's um, Windows 8, uh, there or Windows 8 Industry, that is a free OS, isn't it? Well, there's, so there's a free trial that's 180 days, mm-hmm. and you can keep reinstalling it, you know, for development purposes. Mm-hmm. And, but 180 days is, you know, that's six months. That's a pretty long trial period. Okay. Right. All right. So, so there is, there is a cost to it. I thought there was a thing at Microsoft where you guys were offering Windows free for anything under seven inches or something like that. 
Yeah, the embedded boards sort of fall to the side of that. They're not something that has a screen built into it. They're not a consumer device. Got it. The whole, like, I think it was under 10 inches we announced it build is more about phones and tablets and, and off the shelf stuff and, and being really competitive there right. against other lower cost devices. All right. So if you, if you build an army of IoT things out there with these things, you will have to pay a license for each version of Windows. Uh, it, at least right now, right? Least right so now. that's, yeah. So that's where we are at the moment. Um, we're still at the same point where you have to write drivers if you want access to GPIO mm-hmm. and whatnot on this board. So it's not really for the person who would normally pick up an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi or something, you know, but as Dan sort of alluded to, we're working on lots of things in that space. And Intel and CircuitCo very heavily market this particular board as being a very hacker friendly, IoT friendly board. So I would expect to see more in the future on that. Yeah. So in the future, you're, you're going towards a sort of a gadgeteer platform where you have pluggable uh, uh, shields or lures, as you call them. Is that the idea? Because there's no there's no uh, sockets on it that I can see for for lures, right? So the the middle board max and again, so just to clarify, we didn't create this board. This was a pre existing one. The the Sharks oh, okay. Cove we we co created, um, but this one is something that uh, you know came with Linux, mm-hmm. uh, just like the Galileo did, and we're we're showing that you can also run Windows on it, and they're creating an ecosystem around that of things you can plug into it. Um, but frankly, there are so many of those different types of, you know, connected, uh, connectivity options out there that it's, it's hard to say that being stuck with just one is a good idea. Mm. Uh, so I assume it's going to be more open that way. Most of the people I know that hack with this stuff tend to find whatever their proto solution is, you know, whatever their kind of open, you know, give me access to all the pins and ports type solution. Alligator is, clips. And then, yeah. And then yeah. just hook stuff up to that. Okay. And it is a board for prototyping. This isn't something that you can buy a lot of and make devices, you know, and print cases with a 3D printer and go to town and put them out in the wild, right? Um, well, I mean, the, the middle board for sure, uh, you could put that in a device if you wanted to. Hmm. All right. So that's cool. Now, the, the, so the difference is because that's running a full SKU of Windows, if you buy Windows and, and otherwise follow the license that the middle board people have, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty open uh, license on that, you can do with it whatever you want. Uh, the Galileo is a little different because that's running a preview of what we're working on for Windows for IoT. Mm. And so we've said, hey, that's, that's not really something that you want to go and put inside, you know, that, um, hospital bedside, uh, you know, mission critical device at this point in time. You know, give us a little time to, to, um, solidify everything there first. The, uh, Minoboard Max does have, uh, on it networking capabilities, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's on the board? So it's got, I just happen to have the specs up in front of me here, but, uh, so it's got, uh, an SD card that you use for, for booting from, which mm-hmm. is, uh, pretty typical. Yeah. It has, uh, SATA 2 port on it, which these, uh, the, the ability to have SATA or PCIe wow. and stuff like that on these is a definitely a differentiator from, uh, some of the smaller, uh, you know, devices. You know, you're not going to find an Arduino with a, a SATA port on it, right? Yeah. Um, now suddenly I, you're talking about, would you like a terabyte of storage in your compact device? <laughs> I can do yeah. that. Yeah. And that, that was, that would seem really crazy attached to an eight bit processor. So, yeah. Uh, Don't do it, but you could. And you know, somebody's going to write in the show saying how they got their, uh, Arduino hooked up with this giant, like three terabyte drive or something. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course. Because people do that kind of stuff, which is great. Uh, it's got, uh, USB three. It's got USB two. Uh, it's got a bunch of, um, GPIO pins. 
It's got uh, you know a low speed expansion port, high speed expansion port, and a bunch of this stuff is on the bottom as well. It has HDMI too, right? Yeah, so it's got output for for pretty much everything. Built in Intel graphics as part of the Atom processor. It's a little PC. And and what about uh, input like recording, a microphone input or something? So when I looked at it, they said that the analog audio stuff was going to be one of their lures. Ah, so it could okay. be interesting to see that. That's a lot of processing power. Yeah, like is. you could you could use that to build your own little synthesizer or something. And Circuit Co. That's the name of the manufacturer. Uh, yeah, I believe they're the ones that did the minnow board. Yes, because yeah. they're also the same company that did um, like Beagleboard, mm. uh, Beaglebone, hmm. and those other ones. Uh, so again, very great company to work with, and some really cool devices. And uh, 145, 146 bucks, something like that on Mouser. Yeah, I noticed the Mouser price was like five bucks more or so than what's listed on the site, but it's ninety nine dollars if you want a single core. Uh, roughly 1.4 something gigahertz. And then it's uh, the $140 or so if you want the dual core version. Wow. And dual core, that's pretty wild to have dual core x86, you know, 64 bit processor on a board about the size of a, you know, playing card deck. It is kind of crazy, like just in terms of the sheer amount of horsepower available to you. Yeah. You still get a, you know, I still go back to our, our, our listeners' question. It's like, What's the product exactly? What are we making here? How much horsepower do we actually need? Hey, and hold that thought because I need to tell you about Coder Camps. They're changing the way people learn about .NET and JavaScript. So if you've been learning .NET on your own, these guys can get you the skills you need to get hired in just nine weeks. After over a year, everyone who's graduated has been hired within 90 days. And now they've made it even better by letting students attend camp online. So check them out at CoderCamps.com. Yeah, what what kind of projects are there out there, Pete, that that uh, can give us hope that we can actually do something useful with this? Okay, so let me let me start a little bit on the higher end of things. Uh, and uh, in Steve Guggenheimer's keynote at Build, we showed uh, the the upcoming version of the Akai MPC, which is something that you're probably familiar with. It's you know it, it basically the the Akai MPC is basically ninety percent of the reason that hip hop exists. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> right. It's, it's got the now iconic four by four pad, you know, the, the 16 pads and the built in sequencer and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's been around forever in one form or another. So at build, we showed their next version of it. And inside of that is an Intel Nook. And right. that's so, so that's an i5 processor. Uh, it's, if you're not familiar with the, the Nook, it's the next unit of computing NUC. Yep. And it's essentially, it's a tiny PC. People use them for media centers and digital signage and all sorts of stuff. But it's, um, you can't see my hands here. I'm like, oh, it's about this big. Yeah. Uh, no, it's about, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's about five inches square or so, I think, roughly. I think four, but four and a half. But yeah. Four and, and, half, yeah. and, uh, pricey too. No, I mean, cheaper than a PC, but not as cheap as this. Oh, absolutely. They're, you know, a few hundred dollars and they don't usually come provisioned with memory and, and SATA and everything else or yeah. storage and everything else. But the point is they could take that device and put it directly into that unit. And now they have an Akai MPC uh, that doesn't require a PC or a Mac attached to it. So somebody can go and and it's kind of funny. It's like going all the way back. Well, the original ones also didn't require a PC or a Mac attached to it. But right. now because they do so much software development on the computer, um, they're able to take all of that same knowledge and those same apps and actually the same binaries and run them directly on that device. Wow. 
So, and on that, that's on a Nook, right? So, would the Minoboard Max be appropriate for that particular one? I'm not sure. You know, I think that one really does, you know, benefit from having an i5 or something because it's doing a lot of real time, you know, audio processing and the type of stuff that you were talking about, Carl. Um, But if you think about those types of embedded devices that require a little bit less horsepower, then the something like the Minoboard Max would be perfect. So uh, another example, also in the music space, I have, uh, do you remember the Oberheim Matrix? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So great 80s synthesizer horrible operating system yep. really held back by having a really slow processor um, from the time. So the the Matrix 6 had, uh, I forget what processor it had in it, but because it was so underpowered, it had a lot of MIDI lag and other stuff. Mm. And so I've got a Matrix 6 here, the the rack mount version. It's huge. It's like the size of a, you know, the, the size that rack mount PCs used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, weighs about a thousand pounds. And what I've decided is I'm going to take that or a couple of those and I'm going to combine them together and create my own synthesizer and I'm going to use something like the middle board as the brains of that. Cool. And, and I can use that to handle all the MIDI I.O., all the sequencing, all of the other stuff that I might need to do. And it is going to be more than powerful enough. And because it's pretty low power uh, in terms of like the Atom processor and not having to generate all the heat and stuff that an i5 or an i7 would. I don't have to stick a fan in there. I don't have to worry about things getting super hot. Uh, and I can code for it using all of the same things that I'm used to coding for on the desktop. Right. So I can stick a little touch screen as the interface if I want on there. I can write it in XAML and C++ or C Sharp or whatever I'd like. And maybe even Silverlight? I guess... Yeah, you could do Silverlight on a desktop there. I would I would tend to go with uh, like XAML and C++ or XAML and C Sharp uh-huh. on the, the Windows Store side of things or, or even like WPF on the desktop mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to maybe Silverlight just so I had more access to the I.O. and, and all the things on the Yeah, the good point. Machine. That's a good point. But I mean, um, but, you, I, but yeah. it is a fair interesting idea that, you know, with these boards running full Windows, Silverlight's very attractive in terms of being able to install but it does require, um, you know, user interaction in order to do that. Yeah, I, if you're building an embedded device, the install story is usually not a big concern. Yeah, you're right. right. It's it's more about like what access do I have to all the I/O and yep. stuff on there, which you and mean, as low levels you can. Yeah, yeah, and some sort of C plus plus layer is usually required in there somewhere. In in fact, on Windows CE or Windows Compact Embedded, um, there's a version of Silverlight on there, Silverlight three. Um, for the XAML side, but it's all C++ on the back end. Hmm. And it's an interesting hybrid, but that is one of the main UI stories for, for Compact. And let's talk a little, just a few minutes about the lures that are available for the Minnow Board Max. Do you, I mean, are there stuff, is there stuff and sensors that we can get right now and put on it? Or is it the kind of thing where people are still writing the drivers? And for that matter, do we have drivers to access all the hardware that's on it now in Windows? Right. So the answer on both of those, I believe, is no. Uh, I haven't seen any lures. There might be some out there, but I haven't seen any out yet. Um, everything that I've seen coming from CircuitCo on lures says coming soon. Um, so I haven't, I, again, I haven't seen any specific ones on there. For the same reason, there are no drivers for those. So I think the people who are going to use a board like this, at least initially, are the ones that ha- already have some sort of module that has the I.O. and whatever sensor they want to prove out. Mm-hmm. And they're just going to take a bunch of jumper wires and connect it to the GPIO stuff that's sure. on this yeah. uh, and start there. And then this will mature over time. And what about the uh, the Shark's Cove? 
Yeah, the Sharks Cove is definitely targeted more towards people who are going to, you know, be prototyping big solutions and um, not have like shields or lures or something like that. So I, I wouldn't expect to see much on that side. I gotcha. There does, does seem to be a lot of sockets on it, though. Yeah, and so those sockets are just uh, convenient groupings of uh, the different pins. Okay. Uh, so they do expose like I squared C and and SPI and GPIO and and whatnot there, mm. but they're um, grouped by like input versus output and and other stuff. So right now, the first thing that's got to happen is drivers have to be written. And is that something that's that Microsoft is doing, or is that something that you're hoping uh, third parties will do? So on on the Sharks Cove and the Minnow board right now. Uh, given that we're primarily targeting uh, independent hardware vendors and whatnot, uh, we're going to rely on them to write drivers for their stuff. But over time, especially on something like the Minnow board, which again, Intel and, and CircuitCode say is a very good um, maker type board, uh, we're going to look to that and see you know, what we should be doing there. And as, as uh, uh, Dan alluded to, we're doing lots of things in this space that are probably going to apply to lots of different boards. Uh, and the, really the only thing I can say there is uh, hold on and we are looking at it and, and we'll see what comes out of it. Still not done with the announcements. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it just keeps going just keeps and going, going and going. Well, it's not it, a bad if you, thing. If you think what we're really trying to do across Microsoft is to quit developing all these one-off operating systems and to try to have everything you know, be one core operating system with appropriate you know, UI layers for different devices, you know, like Xbox versus the phone versus, uh, you know, a tablet versus the PC. We, d- we don't want to be spinning up separate operating systems for any of these things. So we want to try to unify as much as possible. Aren't we there now? Aren't you just running one common kernel across everything? Yeah, but, the, you know, from an API surface layer, it's still not as converged as we should be. Right. So that the next version of Windows is really where you're going to see um, the real convergence. Uh, you know, we're, we're pretty close, um, but the, the real convergence does come in the next version it's of Windows. It's got to be a bit of a battle between what's small enough that it'll run in a phone or a minnow board or, you know, something Arduino or Raspberry Pi class and what's appropriate in the cloud. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's... And and certainly there are, especially if you look at what uh, Dan and his team did on the Galileo, they paired way back uh, from Windows, like what for what they would put on the Galileo. Right. Um, so certainly, you, like you lose all the UI stack because it's headless, and so that cuts out a lot of it. Um, but we were able to get it down to like what's it, forty megs or somewhere around there, and it's still not done being paired back. So that's a pretty small install of, of Windows there. And then you, you layer all the other stuff for the other uh, devices as appropriate. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. It must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to solder up a prototype chum bucket full of dead minnows I can throw into the shark cove right next to that group of pretentious idiots playing water polo. Chum bucket. Chum bucket. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have the name Somebody's going to have to make a lure called the chum bucket. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like a, a security honeypot, you know? Okay. It's called the chum bucket, something that attracts the sharks. Yeah. No, it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, 
Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant.net solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is none other than, wait for it, I'm old Doyle Hunter. Congratulations, Doyle. Golf clap for you, sir. Yeah. Doyle just won a big pile of awesome from Developer Express called the D-Experience subscription. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join our fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great stuff from our sponsors, and every December, we give away $5,000 to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And Pete, you oh, know what's coming. This is going to be good. What would you buy with $5,000 right now? Ooh, I know what I would buy with $5,000. I um, So I love synthesizers. I'm a, I'm a terrible musician, but it doesn't uh, you know, keep me from wanting to, to play with these things. And so there is a brand new synthesizer that came out of a company in the UK, and it's called the Modulus 002. Oh, yeah. And, I've heard about this. Oh, have you? Oh, and so it's, it is just absolutely gorgeous. And it sounds great, too, which helps. Um, so it is $5,200 US. Oh. Way, above, way above what well, I could sneak in the door past my wife, right? So it's, it's not happening here. Um, <laughs> but it is built along the same lines as uh, like some of the old PPG stuff. And so it's got kind of like a wavetable uh, synthesizer in it, plus analog filters, gorgeous synth. But an interesting thing on that is it's a cloud-connected synthesizer. What? So they have a, a web server built into it, first of all. Um, and so they have a full operating system, beautiful OLED display. And in that operating system, you could have... Uh, you know, cause this is $5,200. It's not targeted towards the 17 year old kid in their bedroom. It's more targeted towards, uh, you know, pro musicians or studios and whatnot. Yeah. So if this is in a studio, uh, somebody could remotely connect to that if they, if they made it open, get all of your patches and your configuration and everything the way that you like on there before you even show up. Right. Cause they could do that all remotely, um, through the, through the web server built in. Wow. And then they have the cloud connectivity piece through their own service. I'm not sure what they're running on the back end yet. Uh, but that, uh, that lets you easily share patches with other users, uh, lets you, you know, make sure that multiple machines are, or multiple, um, I call it a machine because it's connected and everything, I it guess. It is here. a machine. Uh, multiple synthesizers sharing the same stuff, collaborating. There's some really wild things they're trying to do with the cloud connectivity piece that at first you think, that's really kind of weird. Like, why would you do that? Um, but we're used to that now with the virtual synthesizers and stuff that we use on the PC. We're used to sharing patches. We're used to collaborating more through like services like Gobbler and stuff. And being able to do that directly from a piece of hardware is a pretty wild proposition. You know, I got a story for you. Um, the Irish uh, world music star, and that's really, there's no other way to describe him, Damien Dempsey. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's huge in Ireland. Um, uh, he came to my town for the second time to, to play at a, uh, an Irish pub right here in, in New London. And it's really cool because he only made three stops on the East Coast, New York City, Boston, and Hannafin's Pub in New London. 
Nice. Which is halfway between the two. Halfway between the two. So, and the owners from Dublin, they're, you know, so is, so is, uh, Damo. So that, there, there you go. So there you go. Um, anyway, we lent him, the studio lent him and his band, his keyboard player, our Nord Stage 2 piano. Nice. And, and, yeah, great stuff. And also the uh, Electro 3 that we have. So two really nice state-of-the-art keyboards. And uh, I, I lent them to his keyboard player so he didn't have to bring them over. Anyway, long story short, about a week later, we have a party at the studio. And we're setting up to jam. It's like the fireworks party. Actually, it was only a couple of days later. And uh, all, you know, big crowd of people waiting for the first note. My brother goes, what's wrong with this? And he plays, you know, a, a note on the keyboard, both of them. And they're detuned a half step. Nice. So, obviously, um, the, the keyboard player detuned them. And if you, you know these keyboards, they're kind of difficult to figure out not all that user-friendly in terms of the system functions and everything especially for something obscure like detuning by oh yeah it's like hidden in 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 some menu that you have to rotate this to the right to the left and then click a button and blah 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 hold it down you know like there's a ritual involved in changing the setting it's not just (laughs) like obvious so uh so everybody's waiting and i and, and we were like pulling up manuals on our phones, you know, trying to figure it out. And long story short, 20 minutes goes by. Some people are leaving. We finally got it figured out. But then uh, my brother figured out that if you change patches, it reverted back, you know. So he got it half figured out, but then he couldn't change patches. So he had to just leave it on piano all night. And then so uh, turn turn it off and turn it on again wasn't the solution in this yeah, case, right? Yeah, there was like a right protect on or something like that. So I, I sent him an email and I said, "Hey Einstein, thanks for messing up my uh, my keyboards." You know, and he said, "Hey, I'm really sorry. Nope, here's how you fix it." And he showed us how to fix it. But I I think you got trolled. That that's a, such a great thing to do. Go into a studio and detune all the synthesizers by a semitone. Yeah, that's. <laughs> That's That's just me. Or just do it on a work with a working band, you know, like you go up to sit in, you detune it a half step, and then you say, Okay, gotta go before the guy gets up and they play their next (laughs) Yeah, that's well, you know, I'm gonna get hate mail over that one, I'm pretty sure, but (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, I thought you'd like that story. Yeah, that is pretty funny. I the modulus looks great. It, it's just an absolutely gorgeous synthesizer. And he, he justifies the cost of that in some ways by pointing out that the, the knobs are all machined aluminum. And it's, you know, it's one of those, it's, it's the Mercedes of synthesizers and it just happens to also sound good. Yeah. A boutique item. Definitely. All right. So, uh, so what else can we say about what's going on? What do you, what are your plans? Microsoft's plans for, for hardware? I mean, I thought, Microsoft wasn't going to be a devices company, and then all of a sudden we have these. I mean, granted, you're not making these devices, but but it seems like you you're headed in that direction. Do we ever are we ever going to see a Microsoft branded IoT device? Uh, so I'll never say never because uh, you know we tend to do things crazily uh, from time to time just to shake things up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're going to see most of these devices, if not all of them, done by third parties. And I think as we get further into this, like right now, most of them are Linux first and then Windows afterwards. 
Um, my hope is that as we get further into this and and start showing a lot more progress on the Windows side of things, that we start seeing a lot more Windows first boards that also support Linux and and whatnot uh, as other operating systems. And we you know we're going to continue working with lots of partners here. It's it's not just Intel, although they've been a great partner for us all the time. Um, and you know the x86 stuff is great, but of, of course they're not the the whole industry, and they don't meet every need. So you know we're going to continue expanding out there and and looking at other boards that are appropriate. Still brings back the basic question of you know what kind of devices do we want to build here, and what do they actually look like? That these still to me seem like prototyping boards. You would not mass manufacture against these. Yeah, I mean that's that's partially true. I mean. You can definitely manufacture against these if you're a small-time person that doesn't want to go and fab a multi-layer board, right? If, so you're making 100? So, yeah, if you're making 100, you could buy these in bulk. I, so I saw examples of commercial printing equipment that had like something like five Arduinos inside it. Wow. Right. Um, that were just, they were plugged under the boards. They figured, you know, that was actually the easiest way for them to get the stuff on there. And now with something like Arduino, you're like, well, why didn't you just put a bunch of Atmel chips and the support directly on the board? But they just found that it was easier for them to upgrade them over time and add new capabilities if they just made essentially the whole, um, you know, the whole piece of printing and collating or whatever this, this device was, uh, equipment as one giant shield. Uh, and so they built it that way. You could certainly do the same thing with stuff like Minoboard. Um, but again, if you're, if you're building an x86 device and you're a large company, you're probably going to fab a board around your, your solution. Um, but if you're a smaller company or you're an individual or a hacker, then you'll probably use the boards as is. Right. But the, it's, there's sort of a deeper argument here too that, that general purpose computing devices are getting so cheap that, buying custom boards is not worth it anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's very expensive and time-consuming to build a multi-layer board. And and quite honestly, it's beyond the capabilities of a lot of people who might want to do that. So, right. I mean, just screwing this thing inside the box is often sufficient. Well, and, and so I'm still looking at my dishwasher and saying, I want this thing to have an IP address. I want it to tweet to me when the dishes are done or you know when you get into more serious applications it's actually evaluating what the lowest price of electricity is over the course of the night so it can wash the dishes at the cheapest power rate yeah and in those where uh, stuff like appliances and everything are usually they try to build that to the lowest possible unit cost yes and so in those if they're going to mass produce those if you're like whirlpool or something like that um, then you are almost certainly going to build your own device inside it's just a question of it's still is that a good idea because I want the fact that I want a proper web server and a standard programming languages and things like that like I guess they're still going to go to Intel socks in theory dude you're asking if it's a good idea to use a, a regular board or your own solution to have a web server inside your freaking dishwasher so <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't <that's>... judge me <laughs> <laughs> I need more IP address tied up in my house because the <laughs> six thermostats isn't enough. <laughs> So I think at that point, we're not really that worried about whether or not they're going to use like, you know, an off the uh, off the shelf board or just like a little thing. But Richard's uh, got his own class C domain for his house. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I 
my wife won't let me automate the house. It's just not her thing. She said it, it's funny that the, the process of automation complicates everything. It's like, no, I don't want to have a key for the front door. I want to have something that's integrated with the phone that you just press. It's like, I don't want to deal with that. I have a key. I don't want to mess with that. If I go and get a dishwasher with a web server in it, I am going to be living in the street. I just, I know. <laughs> I don't think you're packaging this right. No, you know, no. Do, I do like the idea, although I didn't successfully sell this either, of walking up to a door and it's unlocked for me and not unlocked for you. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I agree. Hey, why, why is the key behavior even there? It's, it's one of those things that I, I really think it's going to be generational. You know, I, I think that uh, First, a lot the of the old home people have to stuff. die. Yeah, I mean, guys like us, we have to go apparently, um, and and our whole families and everything else with it. So let's just make this as morbid as possible. Well, you know, uh, they're liking it with the car. Yeah, right. The fact that the that the car fob stays in the purse, and you just push the button, the doors unlock. You get in the car, you start the car, and and you never have to find the key. Like, why is that okay in the car, not okay in the front door? I think because people turn over cars much more often than they turn over houses. Yeah. I think it's probably I, the big thing. I also like the fact that you cannot lock the key in the car. It's impossible. If you yeah. leave the key in the car, you close the car, you hit the button to lock it, it beeps at you. And then you why you and then you do it four or five times to see if it's actually going to change its mind mm-hmm. before you finally realize, okay, I'm not, you know, the car's not insane. There's a reason. Oh, the key's in the car. Right. I, I travel a lot, so I tend to, to try out a lot of different rental cars, and a bunch of them have worked like that. And I thought, why isn't my car like that? That's such a cool idea. Yeah. Uh, I've locked my, my keys in the car before and had to call a locksmith over to break in through the, the front, which is, if you've never had that done, it is an extremely impressive thing to watch because you realize how little security you really have. I did the same thing, but with a rock. Nice. <laughs> that, I had a yeah. friend who was a locksmith, and one of his favorite hobbies whenever he saw my car was just to turn it around the parking spot. <laughs> Yes. So I nice. come out, cars parked the other way around the spot, same spot. <laughs> like, how to mess with your head. <laughs> That's awesome. I never heard so that they, story. In high school, we used to take this one kid's car, which was a really light car, and we used to turn it sideways in the parking spot. Ah. And then leave the other two cars just <laughs> Just pick it up there. and move it? Yeah. And we would park cars on either end of it, so he was just sort of stuck there. <laughs> That's too awesome. <laughs> And everybody blames him, right? They're like, hey, look at that jerk who parked sideways. Yeah, he deserves to be locked in. Totally. He's walking home again, right? <laughs> I, but, but Richard, I, you know, I joke about your point about the dishwasher, but you yeah. know, clearly a lot of that stuff is where this is headed. Um, and I really do think that if you're a large-scale manufacturer, you're going you're gonna to spin up your own boards, and it's probably not going to be something atom-based because right. they're going to go for as low power and as low cost as possible. Yeah, as long, I mean, as long as they're keeping the feature set, I really want the .NET framework there, or at least I want a standard service model so that it's easily accessible. For what they yeah. pay, I mean, you know, these we're talking a dollar per unit, right, for a web server, you know, yeah. and, and we're talking really, really scaled down. I mean, when you when you look at, like, low-cost ARM microcontrollers, they really are just, you know, the total bill of materials, you know, the the controller and then you know, the capacitors and everything around them can be as low as just a few dollars. Um, and when you get to 8-bit stuff, it's even less. But most people aren't doing web servers and things on 8-bit at this point. They're, they're usually doing 32-bit stuff. Yeah. Uh, and Well, because that stuff's so cheap now. Yeah. And so they, they really do try to keep those as, as cheap as possible. But I think over time, the, the requirement for what people want to do with those is going to get high enough that you will have to start looking at 
processors like this. Like right. even if you, even if you look at the evolution from 8-bit to 32-bit ARM, uh, you know, from the 8-bit AVR type stuff, from even like, you know, old 4-bit little dedicated processors and whatnot, each of these devices seems to be taking um, more and more power, you know, not power like from the wall, but power just in terms of, of capabilities um, and doing more than they were, say, like 10 years ago. Right. Well, and and the, like I said, expectations keep going up. I I would like a phone interface to those devices. I, I would like it to be able to negotiate for power or to, and to, to report to me its total consumption. Like, yeah. And we see those devices out there. Once you've gotten a Nest report, you know, once your thermostat has told you what it's been up to for the past month, mm-hmm. y- your expectations go up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and they, we're not talking original thinking here. It's been done. Just more, please. Yep. And it's funny because I have a couple of Twitter searches on IoT just to see what other people are saying about it. And the big meme right now is everybody's talking about it being the single most hyped thing uh, yeah. at the moment. You know, it's it was big data and now it's IoT. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. But I think, you know, despite the hype, you know, I, I'm doing a, a talk here uh, in, a, in a week or so that is more it's the hype is real. Like the, this stuff. People are doing this already, and the devices are there already, and the opportunity for people to get involved in this is absolutely enormous. And speaking uh, of that, mm-hmm. I've actually started a, a, a company, App V Next. It's a development shop for building the next generation Internet of Things and jaw-dropping NUI apps. And we're always looking for experienced and talented people to join our team. So if you're interested, go to appvnext.com and go ahead and send me your resume. Yeah, if you're stuck in a job where you're just grinding out code and it's gotten and the challenge is gone and you're kind of bored with it, something like IoT really can reinvigorate. Absolutely. Because you have a lot more connectivity requirements around it. If you're a security expert, that's going to be a huge space for you because right now IoT suffers from having pretty much no security. Mm -hmm. Um, as was demonstrated, there was a, a hacker event recently where they're talking about how it's it's uh, the inter- the Internet of Things. It's more like hack all the things because everything is open, right? Right. Uh, and and insecure or unsecure. So it might be insecure as well. Yeah, we uh, we talked to Clemens Vasters a bit a while ago uh, about some of the patterns that he and his guys are are thinking of as best practices for um, for making these things secure. One of them is everything's a client. Right, and then use the, he's envisioning these boards with uh, keys burned into the silicon, and so these keys will be used for um, transferring data to a server that knows the keys, and so you only have these registered devices sending data to one place in one place only. Yeah, and that's probably a really good idea because the, the challenge with these is a lot of times the client devices that you're working on just don't have the juice to be able to do the encryption that you need for mm. what we typically think of as as the security approach. Yeah. Another thing that's great about this field, about IoT, is it's not just about, I mean, the easiest part is going to be, you know, taking data from a sensor and sending it to the web. That's actually fairly easy. But it encompasses mobile apps, web apps, NUI, user, the user interface, you know, looking at this data has to be great. And also you're talking about analysts on the, you know, data analysis and uh, machine learning and all of that great stuff that goes into dealing with large sets of data. And you're talking about big data. So, so right. the IoT revolution really encompasses all of these things that we know. 
in these great big systems and and putting it all together into something that's really uh you know the the demo that we're going after at AppV Next is nothing short of minority report. Right? Yeah. I think that's a great summary of IoT right there. It's really about all the things that we've been we've been doing so far but kind of pulling them together into, you know, to to actually do something useful. Like tweet from your dishwasher. <laughs> well, my wife is still waiting for the robot that brings her a cup of coffee in the morning. She thinks as soon as I do that, then I will be the biggest genius in the world. Meantime, you're just slacking off. Yeah. 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 And it can't be, you know, cheapo coffee, too. It's got to be like, grind the beans, make the coffee, bring me a cup, wake me up. Well, I mean, the coffee machine part is solved. It's the how to get the cup from there. To you. I mean, the obvious, the obvious solution is to put the coffee maker right next to your bed with an alarm that wakes you up and makes you, you know, a pot of coffee. But who would do that? <laughs> I'm violent with my alarm in the morning. So having it be a, co- uh, a pot of scalding coffee would probably not be a good idea. All right. I mean, I'm pretty keen on all of this and, and we keep thinking about household automation. Uh, I still think back to our, our listeners question about things that businesses can do that improve their overall business because they've got a lot of missions in front of them right now if you think about the past couple of years it's you better get your services into the cloud Mm -hmm. you better allow your customers to communicate with mobile devices and now this iot thing and i only talk about big data although i think i know why iot's overwhelm big data because they were starting to run out of data and we get more computers out there then we'll have more data (laughs) (laughs) well you know it's right it sounds trite but he's right i mean the biggest thing missing right now is data. When we have when we have great algorithms for machine learning and all that stuff, you need sets of data to come to conclusions about stuff. And uh, you know, there's nothing better than the the world to get that right. data from. And when you're talking about what it can do to improve your business, it's going to be very business dependent. Right. Um, you know, the UPS driver with his device and, you know, being able to track the trucks. I mean, there's obvious IoT scenarios there, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, all the way from their own kind of learning all the way down to making sure that you get automatic updates as the person who actually ordered or sent the package um, without any sort of manual step along the way. I mean, people are already doing that quite, quite clearly. Yeah, um, fleet tracking software is an interesting piece of that where every, you know, where every truck is all the time and you can actually plan routes better. Like that's a, that's a cool, I, I, I have to, you know, that's existed for a while, but right. I, I think we can happily put that under the IOT banner. Yeah. I mean, really, like you said, or like Carl said, IOT is a coming together of a lot of these things. Yeah. But now take that idea and. Let's say that uh, all the cars are equipped that way. And there are already cars that drive themselves and drive themselves really well. It's just yep. a matter of the public being ready for that. I think that's really the only thing holding that back at this point. There's some uh, legislation problems, too. We did a whole show on it, show episode 900. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll have to catch that. Um, and so the, if you think about those, and maybe you covered this as part of that, if you think about things like stoplights and traffic uh, circles and everything and being able to get the car to notify the traffic signal up ahead that it's coming and the traffic signal is able to automatically figure out the best timing for that car to go through there without uh, and to improve the traffic flow uh, to let as many cars through as possible. I mean, those are little things that are IoT type solutions that will improve our lives. 
you may not think that letting as many cars in as possible is a big deal, but think about this. Most of the air pollution in a city occurs with big diesel trucks that are stopped at stoplights. And right. so if the, uh, if the IOT network can see those trucks coming, it can let them through those, uh, make sure that the lights are green as they go through so they don't have to stop and pollute the city. Right. And what about, you know, elevators that know, and some of this starts to smell a little big brothery, but again, this is one of those generational things, I think. But what about elevators that know you? And so they see you and four of your coworkers, you know, standing in front of the elevator waiting to get on and it's able to optimize the, you know, the, the way the elevators are being used by knowing that you're going to get off on floor 10 and the person over here next to you is going to get off on floor 30 and being able to do all that routing and stuff automatically. I mean, those are also kind of IoT solutions that rely on, uh, you know, a lot of data and a lot of machine learning. So a lot of things like that. And then, uh, you know, all the stuff that you would do, you know, if you're somebody like Walmart or Target and you have inventory, you know, just in time inventory was a big deal, you know, many years ago. And most of the places have figured that out. Uh, but they can always improve that based upon information that's on the shelf, right? Um, and, and what about if your local grocery store knew that, um, nine out of 10 people that normally shop there are currently out of eggs? Right. Yeah, and so that they could idea. order that in advance by just right. knowing that about the customers. I was just looking at a, an ultra low cost, low powered ultrasonic sensor to go in the cap of a milk bottle so it can tell how much milk still in the bottle. Oh my God, Richard. Sweet. Well, solving this, the fridge problem is an awesome one, right? Like just knowing everything that's in the fridge electronically and how much of each of those things are and how old they are. Yeah, and that can be done just by putting, you know, barcodes on on stuff or I don't know. Well, yeah, but who, who wants the barcode, right? No, you're right. Yeah. RFID and, me, please. You're right. Yeah. You, you don't want to RFID a baggie of of uh, bacon or something. And think about how many grocery stores, how much they waste every year on having to throw away spoiled merchandise. And now if they there's can, your way in, right? If you tell consumers, "Hey, let's stop wasting food," you can be part of the solution rather than part of the problem, right? There's a way into the consumer. Because, you know, the consumer, it's really a first-world problem whether or not you have eggs in the fridge. It's such an easy-to-solve problem with just a little bit of effort. But, but you know, if you're, if you're part of something bigger than that, that's actually going to stop food waste. Right. Well, pretty quickly get into, now, why am I going to the grocery store? You know what's in my fridge, and you know what I want to make <laughs> this week. Deliver me the products. Yeah. 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 In other words, you have a, a menu of things you want right on your fridge, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Or you know, all my whole family has devices. We we vote on what dinner's going to be this week. Yeah, right. And then we match that against the inventory that's in our fridge. Order what needs to come from the grocery store. It arrives. Theoretically, and then you see what actually gets consumed. Theoretically, you could do that already just by uh, velcroing an iPad or something to your fridge. And writing the right software that, you know, makes a, a and puts in an order to Peapod, which is a delivery service grocery stores here have in, in the Northeast. It's, it's about the labor part of keeping track of what's consumed and what isn't consumed and so forth. Well, you know, but I don't want my fridge automatically ordering a roast that I want, you know, once a month. I don't, I don't want that. You know, I want, I want some, I want control over what goes in my fridge. But I would like a recommended list. Like, based on what you consumed last week, here's what you need more of. That right. I would like, yes. And the store should have that information. And, you know, as, as somebody with two young kids, we're, our food is more, 
it's not always roasts and stuff. It's like a lot of just essentials that sure I, kids. I've never realized how much food kids consume. Like mini goes and saltines. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely insane. They're just little, obviously little factories. Yeah, and then uh, having that information available and and being able to get that to the store, I think, is a really big deal. And truthfully, that is one part of IoT that I could sell to my wife. Sure. Well, now you're up at a level and it's like, okay, here's what my dietitian is recommending I eat. Here's the appropriate recipes. These are the ingredients is where we get them from. Like making it really easy for you to follow a good diet. As long as we're juicing on good ideas here, which I love this part of the show. um, How about the, you know, there's three or four different grocery store chains in my immediate area. How about the fact that they would compete Knowing that, hey, it's about time you had a filet mignon because you have one about every month. Here's, you know, we're having a special this week or whatever. How about they compete on that? Yeah. I mean, I mean it, it, there's, there is a, a fine line, you know, that we're walking here because price fixing is very tempting, you know, for, right. for these guys. And if they know what each other's prices are, they can know just as easily as we can if we know, right? So a lot of stores already do not the price fixing part, uh, but the uh, the the other part where they're trying to target their advertising more uh, mm. using things like geofences. Yeah. Right. So when you walk by their building, um, you know this works better in malls as opposed to big supermarkets. Mm-hmm. They know you, and they know it's probably time you had say a haircut, right? And suddenly you get a coupon on your phone saying, "Hey, you know, two bucks off a haircut. Uh, come in here today." And so That's they're totally getting, minority report. Totally, isn't it? yeah. Now, now you you know to finish it with minority report is not only do I recognize the guy, then you use directional speakers so that you could pass a message only to them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a guy I work with named Josh Holmes who just ordered some directional speakers for a project we're doing internally, uh, and he's in love with those things. They're very cool, little yeah. like sound cannons. We're big fans yeah. of Josh. Big fans of Josh. He's the reason we got a chance to wander around Ireland meeting some fans. That's right. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think that's about it. I mean, I would love to just talk about the possibilities a little uh, a little bit more, but I think we've done enough to whet people's appetites and uh, get them interested anyway. Yeah, I think so. And it's been this, fun. Thank you for all your great work at Microsoft, Pete, and uh, you and your team. Keep it up because, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for those uh, lures and the programmability and all of that stuff. No, thank you guys for, for having this show for so long. Like, how long has this show been on now? Uh, it's been about an hour. No, 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 no. <laughs> 62 minutes. Yeah. It, that's got to been, you must be pushing, what, 15 years or so? Close to? 12. Yeah. yeah. Started in 2002. So, yeah, so thank you for, for doing the show for, for so long because it's been, I think, probably the driving force behind a lot of .NET for a long time. Well, I, 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 I would shudder at that fact, but uh, I'm glad that people are listening anyway. Thank you very much, Pete. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com 
for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.